All right. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, so this morning, we're going to speak about some of the investigational therapeutics that we can utilize and that are being studied for the treatment of uh, SARS-CoV-2. Uh, and for the treatment of SARS and the way that we are dealing with COVID-19, it is a little bit uh, discouraging when I woke up this morning and then realized that I again had to update the uh, number of confirmed patients and the number of patients who have uh, died from this disease. And we have seen uh, 3.7 million uh, people uh, infected globally with over a quarter uh, million deaths. And in the United States, uh, we have seen the curve start to plateau in New York and New Jersey, but in 23 other states around the country, day by day, we start we have uh, still seen the numbers of infected patients uh, continue to rise, and this was updated uh, this morning. So. Uh, Fortunately, COVID-19 has a very uh, familiar cousin in SARS, and the uh, structure of these two viruses are very similar with one exception. And that is that SARS-CoV-2 binds to the ACE2 receptor with 10 to 20 times the affinity of SARS. And that is hypothesized to account for its high rate of transmissibility. And in order for COVID-19 to uh, infect a cell and gain entry, it has to bind to ACE2. And ACE2 is the receptor that allows COVID-19 to enter the cell. And after it enters the cell, then we can start looking at different uh, therapeutics that we can use to uh, alter the course of the disease. We have drugs that can uh, inhibit membrane fusion and endocytosis. We have drugs that inhibit proteolysis, uh, RNA synthesis, and we also have drugs that affect some of the more downstream aspects of this disease, uh, such as uh, cytokine storm and cytokine release syndrome. And the first drug that we're going to talk about this morning uh, inhibits membrane fusion and endocytosis. And uh, no talk about COVID-19 would be complete without uh, examining the effects of hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine and azithromycin uh, on COVID-19. The first study that looked at the use of chloroquine uh, was uh, done uh, in the 1930s and uh, 1940s. Uh, this was originally a uh, anti-malarial agent and uh, it is also used in rheumatoid arthritis. And the mechanism of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine is that it is a weak base that affects the uh, acidic cellular uh, organelles, uh, such as endosomes, uh, your Golgi apparatus, and your lysosomes. 
And this leads to inhibition of host receptor glycosylation. It disrupts uh, endosome-mediated uh, viral entry, such as uh, seen in bornavirus, in uh, avian leukosis, and hepatitis A. And it also inhibits post-translational modification of glycoproteins, uh, such as seen in the myrovirus and in uh, HSV-1. The first study to examine the use of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin in COVID-19 was a study that was done in France. And this was a, a very small study. It was done in uh, 36 patients. In the treatment arm, 20 patients received 600 milligrams of hydroxychloroquine uh, every, uh, Q day, uh, plus or minus azithromycin. And there were 16 patients in the control arm. By day six, the investigators found that uh, viral clearance was enhanced in patients receiving the hydroxychloroquine. 70% uh, of these patients had viral clearance by day six uh, versus only 12.5% um, in the control group. And despite the uh, small n, uh, this number was statistically significant. When the investigators added azithromycin to the hydroxychloroquine, this resulted in viral clearance in six out of six patients uh, who received the combination uh, hy uh, hydroxychloroquine and uh, azithromycin, um, but it only resulted in 57% clearance in patients who received hydroxychloroquine monotherapy. There are significant limitations to this study, uh, namely the small sample size of 20 patients who received the hydroxychloroquine and only six patients who received combination therapy. Furthermore, there were six patients who are removed from analysis uh, due to adverse events, and the study failed to control for the variable uh, baseline viral loads of these patients and they also did not report on any clinical or safety outcomes. A follow-up study was done in Brazil, and this study examined the use of high-dose versus low-dose chloroquine, uh, 600 milligrams BID for 10 days in the high-dose group and 400 milligrams uh, Q-day for five days in the low-dose group. And both groups also received ceftriaxone and azithromycin. And originally, the study was supposed to enroll 440 patients, but by patient 81, the Data Safety Monitoring Board abruptly ended enrollment in the high-dose chloroquine arm. And that is because the safety board saw increased mortality in this high-dose group, which was uh, statistically significant as well as increased toxicity in the high-dose group. Uh, up to 18% of patients who received the high-dose chloroquine had QTC prolongation, and two of these patients had uh, VTAC arrests. So that's why the uh, high-dose arm was ended early. There are other ongoing studies on hydroxychloroquine uh, in the uh, United States. Um, this is the ORCID study. Um, it's being conducted at Mass General and at the NIH. Um, there are several other uh, sites throughout the country that are participating, 
and we eagerly await the results of this multi-center uh, randomized controlled uh, placebo trial. So we talked a little bit about chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, which uh, inhibits membrane fusion and endocytosis. What about the use of other medications further down the viral replication chain? And we're going to talk about uh, a drug called uh, lapinavir, which uh, inhibits uh, proteolysis. And this was a oral protease inhibitor that was originally approved for treatment in HIV, and it inhibits 3-chymotryptin lyse protease. Taking a look at the use of this drug in SARS, um, this was a study that was done in uh, Hong Kong in 2013, where uh, 111 patients were uh, placed in the control group um, and 41 patients were placed in the treatment group. And this study uh, utilized a uh, before-after um, design, which you can see here. Uh, which has uh, many confounding factors that are just inherent to that type of study design. The primary outcome was ARDS, or uh, death by day 21, and the investigators from Hong Kong found that there was an improved rate in the primary outcome in those treated with lopinavir and ritonavir, and this was statistically significant. Uh, only 2.4% of the patients in the treatment arm died or developed ARDS versus 28.8% in the control arm. And on a multivariate analysis, uh, age, uh, hepatitis B carrier status, as well as lack of treatment with this combination therapy uh, put you at higher odds of developing the primary outcome. So does the results of a drug which works in SARS actually translate to working in COVID-19? This was a study uh, done in China. Um, this was uh, recently published in the New England Journal and it was a randomized control trial of 199 patients with uh, COVID-19 uh, who had a uh, oxygen saturation less than or equal to 94% uh, or a PaO2 to FiO2 less than 300. In the control arm, 100 patients received standard of care, and in the intervention arm, 99 patients received uh, the lapinavir, uh, ritonavir, in addition to standard of care. And the primary outcome was the time to clinical improvement uh, which was defined as discharge from the hospital or improvement of two points on a seven-point scale. And on this scale, it took into account uh, whether or not you were hospitalized, uh, whether or not you required oxygen, and also whether or not you required uh, invasive uh, mechanical ventilation or invasive circula circulatory support. Unfortunately, um, in this trial, um, the results from SARS did not pan out in COVID-19. And if you take a look at the cumulative clinical improvement rate, uh, there was no uh, statistical difference uh, between the combination therapy and the uh, control group. And furthermore, there was also no difference uh, in the viral loads uh, between the two groups. And there was also no difference in 
28-day mortality. One key factor to look at in this study was the median time from symptom onset to intervention, which was 13 days. So these patients uh, had almost a two-week period elapsed between the time they felt sick to the time they received these study drugs. And I wonder if the intervention was performed earlier, let's say around day four or five, whether or not um, the investigators would have gotten a statistically uh, significant uh, signal. So uh, we've talked about uh, drugs that inhibit uh, proteolysis. Now let's move even further down the uh, RNA uh, replication chain uh, and talk about some uh, RNA synthesis inhibitors. So one of the drugs that uh, has made its way into the press recently is remdesivir. And remdesivir is a RNA polymerase inhibitor. Specifically, it's a C-adenosine nucleoside, nucleoside cross triphosphate analog. And originally, this drug was developed for the treatment of patients with Ebola virus. And uh, in one of the first case reports describing this drug in clinical use, a 39-year-old nurse from Scotland uh, was exposed to Ebola in Sierra Leone um, back uh, um, when she was volunteering there. She was treated and discharged with an undetectable Ebola viral RNA in her peripheral blood. And a full nine months later, she re-presented to the hospital with meningoencephalitis and Ebola in her CSF. You can see here in red is uh, the uh, viral load. Um, so the viral load on days one through seven were pretty constant. And on day seven, the investigators uh, started this uh, treatment drug. And as soon as this drug was started, you can see that the viral load plummets and uh, she was eventually uh, discharged uh, about 40 days later. So does this drug that has been shown to work in Ebola, can it be repurposed for another virus, SARS-CoV-2? And this was a uh, descriptive study that was published in the New England Journal very recently. And it describes the use of uh, rendisivir in 61 patients who received this drug on a compassionate use basis. And these patients um, had uh, uh, either had a uh, pulse ox less than 94% on room air, or they were requiring oxygen support. And they were dosed with rendisivir for uh, 10 days, 200 milligrams on day one, and then 100 milligrams Q day on days two through 10. The median age of the patients in this uh, study was about uh, 64. Um, they comprised of patients from the uh, US, Japan, uh, Europe, or Canada. And 64% uh, of these patients uh, required invasive uh, ventilation. And at 18 days, the investigator uh, reported a improvement uh, uh, in 68% uh, of patients uh, in terms of their oxygen support. 
Furthermore, 57% of these intubated patients were extubated, and 47% of these patients were discharged with a 18% mortality rate in the intubated group and a 5% mortality rate in the non-intubated group. Uh, what is important to note about this study is that it is a descriptive study only, and it does not make any comparisons to a control group which did not receive the remdesivir. So this is a descriptive study only, and we don't know if these 68% uh, of patients who had improvement in oxygen support did so because of the remdesivir or because that was going to be the natural clinical course of their disease. But this study is important because it provides the follow-up to the ACT trial, the Adaptive COVID-19 Treatment Trial. Um, this is a, a large uh, multi-center trial that is sponsored uh, by the NIH, and it uh, currently is investigating the use of rendisivir versus placebo. And so far, it has enrolled over 1,000 patients in 68 centers, and the primary outcome is the time to recovery, um, which they defined as uh, either hospitalized, not requiring oxygen, or discharge from the hospital. And the very first patient in the world who was enrolled in this trial was actually a cruise ship passenger on the Diamond Princess. And he was docked off the coast of Japan and uh, he uh, was uh, eventually uh, uh, repatriated back to the United States where he was put in quarantine at the University of Nebraska. And he was the first patient uh, who was enrolled in this trial. And what are some of the preliminary results? Well, uh, there is no formal manuscript out there. Um, this data is uh, simply from a press release uh, from the NIH. So no one has actually been able to uh, read the manuscript yet. But um, the preliminary results showed that the use of rendesivir uh, resulted in a 31% faster time to recovery 11 days in the rendesivir group versus 15 days in placebo, which was uh, statistically significant. And there was also a signal toward mortality benefit, 8% um, in the rendesivir group versus 11.6% in placebo. And this signal approached, uh, approached statistical significance with the p-value of uh, 0.059. Because of these preliminary results, um, the FDA has uh, issued a emergency use authorization uh, for the use of rendesivir in the United States for the treatment of uh, COVID-19. So we've talked about uh, drugs that work at three different points in the um, uh, viral replication cascade. Now, what about some other adjunctive therapies that can take care and treat uh, some of the downstream effects of COVID-19? And one of these uh, downstream uh, entities that we are seeing over and over in the ICU is cytokine storm. And specifically, 
there is a disease entity called secondary uh, hematophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, or SHLH, um, and that is a hyperinflammatory syndrome with fulminate uh, increases in your level of cytokines and multi-organ failure. It's treated, uh, triggered by viral infections, uh, and it's seen in 3 to 4% of sepsis cases and presents with fevers, cytopenias, elevated ferritin, and ARDS. And a group out of uh, Wuhan, China, took a look at cytokine syndrome in COVID-19, and they measured uh, the levels of uh, troponins, uh, they let, measured the myoglobin levels, CRP, and interleukin-6 levels. And you can see that in patients with uh, cytokine uh, release syndrome, especially the patients with mortality, which is in orange, they had significantly elevated markers of each one, including IL-6. And it turns out that we do have a drug that can block IL-6 receptors, and that is tocilizumab. And that is a recombinant anti-human IL-6 uh, uh, receptor antibody. And the way it works is that it binds to soluble IL-6 receptors to block signal trans transduction. And it also binds to membrane-bound IL-6 receptors, which also uh, inhibits signal transduction. And the main evidence for the use of this drug uh, is from uh, retrospective analysis of CAR T-cell therapy, where 69% of these patients had resolution of cytokine release syndrome within two weeks of uh, intervention with this drug. And it actually uh, has gained FDA approval back in 2017 for treatment in rheumatoid arthritis, as well as in cytokine release syndrome. So this, does this drug work in COVID-19? Um, in China, there was a uh, prospective study that was done in uh, 21 patients. Um, and uh, these patients received four to eight milligrams per kilo IV of uh, uh, this drug. Uh, it is important to note that uh, these patients also received other uh, interventions which were uh, determined as a, a standard of care in this hospital. A uh, lot of antivirals, uh, IFN-alpha, uh, as well as steroids. And after patients receive the tocilizumab, uh, you can see that the CRP levels start to fall, the temperature and uh, fevers uh, start to dissipate as well as the, there was an uh, improvement in uh, oxygen uh, therapy, as well as your pulse ox. And then uh, this is the before and after of the uh, chest CTs in these patients. And you can see that before the tocilizumab was given, these patients all had ground glass opacities, uh, consolidations, and infiltrates, and they are visibly improved after administration of this drug. And this drug is being uh, studied in a, uh, another trial, the COVACTA trial. Um, and this is an international trial that is being done in the United States, Italy, France, and uh, Germany. So tocilizumab only blocks IL-6 receptors, but 
we know that in COVID-19, uh, your other uh, cytokines are all uh, increased as well. And what if we were able to uh, br more broadly block the, uh, the elevation in cytokine markers in COVID-19? And we actually do have a device for this. And uh, this uh, device is uh, approved in the European Union. It's called Cytosorb. And uh, it is a cytokine filter that you can attach to patients um, who have cytokine uh, release syndrome. And um, in their study, um, they uh, examined the use of this filter in patients with, again, a severe uh, CAR T-cell uh, therapy-associated cytokine release syndrome. And they found that this device broadly blocked, um, broadly blocked uh, your interleukins, uh, as well as your GCSF, and other markers of endothelial activation. And this too is another device that has been granted uh, FDA emergency use during this pandemic. And finally, I'm going to talk a little bit about convalescent plasma. And convalescent plasma has uh, previously been used in SARS as well as in H1N1 with success. And uh, this was a paper that was published in JAMA uh, recently, uh, which describes the use of convalescent plasma in five ICU patients with ARDS and severe pneumonia. And the investigators intervened by administering plasma with uh, high levels of SARS-CoV-2 IgG antibody titers. And the timing of this administration was 10 to 22 days after admission. And if you take a look at the uh, plasma donors now, um, these donors donated approximately 400 mLs of plasma uh, to each patient. And the um, interval between symptom onset and plasma donation was about 22 to 26 days. And you can see that the IgG and the IgM titers are extremely high. Um, they range from 1,800 to 16,000, whereas the expected titer of a negative control patient is less than um, 200. And in these five patients, the PaO2 to FiO2 uh, significantly improved after administration of the plasma. The uh, fevers and body temperature uh, um, went down and the SOFA scores also significantly improved. And the cycle threshold, which is the number of polymerase chain reaction or PCR cycles required for gene amplification uh, went up. And a higher CT or cycle threshold value is correlated with a lower viral load and a CT value of 40 was defined as undetectable. And you can see that by day 12, all five of these patients had undetectable um, viral loads. So that was a case series of five patients. So uh, in the United States, there is a very large uh, multi-center um, expanded access program um, ongoing, uh, and that's primarily being headed by the uh, Mayo Clinic. Um, so far, as of yesterday, it has enrolled uh, over 2,000 sites, 
and it has uh, led to uh, plasma infusions in uh, six, uh, over 6,000 patients. So we also eagerly await the results of that program to see if that uh, convalescent plasma can be used uh, reliably to uh, treat patients with COVID-19. So um, today we talked about uh, various drugs. I know there are a lot of drugs out there for the treatment of COVID-19, and I definitely did not mention all of them, um, but I definitely tried to mention the drugs that we may uh, come across here at the uh, University of Maryland. Um, and um, that's all I have for you today. Um, with that, um, if any of you have any questions, um, I'd be happy to take uh, any questions.